0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're in Ephesians chapter 2 today. And we're going to be looking primarily at verses 4 through 7, because last week we looked at verses 1 through 3. Wasn't a happy time, but a necessary time. But today's passage still reaches back to some of those things. So for our time together, we're going to actually read the word beginning in Ephesians 2, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. And I would like it if you guys would read with me together. Can I be obnoxious? Can we stand together just in honor of the word? It just feels right. Let's feel old school just for a moment. No groaning. No groaning. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7, and I don't care what translation you got, I don't care if it's different, I don't even care if it's a different language, we're going to fill this room with the sound of the word of God being declared. So beginning in verse 1, read with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Nice and loud on this one. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God, we pray that you would just open our eyes to an understanding and a reality and grasp of this passage that changes the way we live. Whether we're saved now or not, may you change us through your word. I pray, God, for myself that you would guide the very words that are spoken, and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, Ephesians 2, the topic of Ephesians 2 is pretty simple. We have been saved. Ephesians 1 covers all sorts of issues of identity. We've been adopted, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, but Ephesians 2 hones in on the central and most important reality in all of Scripture, you have been saved. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in the area of Ephesus. We would call it modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to them to teach them more and more about who they are. Ephesians is a book about identity, this is who you are. This is what's happened to you. This is what's changed in your life. And, and he spends the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians declaring these glorious truths and it's some of the deepest and richest theology in all the Bible. And then in the next section, chapters 4 through, that's where he goes into, now in light of that reality, because this is who you are, because this has changed in you, this is what life looks like. This is how we honor God. This is how we glorify God. This is how we view the world. And everything application-wise pours out of the reality of who we are in Jesus. It's a book of identity. And so here in chapter 2, he's really leaning in this issue of salvation. This is one of the most clear and deep descriptions of salvation in all the Bible. That's the topic. Now, the purpose of him writing this in Ephesians 2 is worship and awe. Just like in chapter one, those of you that were with us, where we went through verses three through 14, that one big giant run on sentence, it's God, or excuse me, it's Paul gushing with praise about the things that God has done. And the goal is that we would end in worship. And the same is going on here. The idea is this, Paul desires that we would just absolutely be amazed and honored and blown away at the fact that we have been saved, this is the goal. Now there's something in us that resonates with those kind of things, whether you naturally feel it with regards to Christianity or not. There's something about us in humanity that we are drawn to stories of salvation and rescue. Are we not? We honor the firemen, for example, right now in central Oregon. One of our own was even sent this week. Justin Keelock got sent this week to go help with those horrible fires that are going on. We honor men who are going into the things we run out of, right? Whether that be 9-11 or any of those things. And when we hear stories of salvation, they resonate with us. I, I can remember still. It was just this little story in the news when I still lived in North Carolina about a skydiver, and there was a woman who had gone out skydiving for the first time. Maybe I remember this because I was planning to go skydiving until I heard this story. But um, in this particular story, this woman went out skydiving. And, and as you know, I think it's the same out here. You don't just go solo skydiving the first time you ever go. For a season, you're going tandem. They strap you to someone else and, and you, you go. And so in this particular case, it was this woman's first time ever going skydiving. And so she was up, the instructor was strapped to her back. She's on the front like one of those baby Bjorn things, but turned the other way, you know, and, and, and they jump out of the plane and they're just enjoying the free fall and all that stuff. But at a certain point, it was time to pull the cord and the instructor pulled the cord and nothing happened. Now, you know, they have a reserve chute though, thank goodness, but the instructor pulled that cord too and nothing happened. And all the other people that were there with them, skydiving, their chutes are opening, so they're popping up all over the place, and it didn't take this woman long to realize we are in big trouble. And so she began to panic, understandably so. She's freaking out, she's flailing around in the air, but the, the guy that was behind her, the skydive instructor that she was strapped to, was in total control the whole time. When she would flail too much, he was grabbing her arms and pushing them around, he's looking at his watch, he was watching the altimeter, constantly in control as they barreled towards the ground. And as they got there, at the last second, she's on his stomach, facing down, as they get close to the ground, he instituted a roll that spun them around like like this and they landed him first on the ground he died she survived and it was a tremendous story I mean thinking through the intentionality that's going on as he makes that fateful decision the control that he was in watching her panic and yet to do such a thing that her life would be she was messed up for sure don't get me wrong but she lived she survived and this man gave his life went first on her behalf we hear those stories and we're moved are we not There was another famous story in Missouri, along the Mississippi River, true story, two boys that were walking along the banks and playing there near one of the levees because the area had been recently ravaged by floods. And so there were areas where levees were made with sand and sandbags, and they just piled all sorts of dirt to keep the river within its banks. And the river was still high, but the flood on the other side of the levee had subsided. And so what looked safe also looked interesting to a couple of young boys as they're walking around surveying the damage of the flood. But unfortunately, they ended up in, and this is a real thing, they ended up in quicksand as a result of all the stuff that was happening. And they were screaming, and people called, called for, for uh, rescue teams to come and get them. And, and when the fire department and the ambulances or whoever it was came to rescue, and they only saw one boy sticking out of the sand about like this, and they're asking him, where's your brother, where's your brother? And his response, famous response was, I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother had intentionally put his younger brother on his shoulders so that he would survive though he was dying. Now, look, there's something in our soul, in our nature, that when we hear a story of rescue like that, we are drawn to. Why do you think that is? Maybe there's something innate in us that that absolutely appreciates salvation because maybe whether we know it for sure or want to admit it or realize it, we need it ourselves. Amen? Well, this is what Paul does here. The idea is you have been saved, and the goal is that it would result in worship. And so if you, did, if you were here last week and you didn't like last week's message, it's important because the, the first question that should come is, saved from what? Saved from what? What are you talking about, Paul? You're going on, we've been saved, we've been saved. Saved from what? And this is what Paul deals with in verses one through three of this particular chapter. You can never forget what you've been saved from. We have to have sermons like last week and study texts like last week from time to time because it is really important that we do not forget what we've been saved from. In fact, scripture commands us to remember what we've been saved from. In the very text we're in, fast forward to verse 12 of chapter two, look what it says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, remember this. Don't forget this. And though it's uncomfortable to talk about hell, Though it's uncomfortable to talk about sin, it's an absolute necessity in the church. It's not something I enjoy doing. I've told you guys last week, I'd rather tell jokes and talk about happy things, and we got happy things today for sure, but it is a job requirement, it is a necessity that we cannot take the reality of hell or the reality of our sin out of the equation. If we do, we lose everything. Look, Market research today actually tells us a lot about the church. Market research goes around all over the place and has done studies and surveys to find out what is it, if churches are declining, as some say that they are, What is it that's driving people away from the church? Why isn't it like it used to be when people would just sort of wander into churches, now they're not? What's the difference? And so people have done literal research on this and tested them. And the number one reason that people tell these researchers that they don't like going to church and don't want anything to do with church is because, and I quote, they're always telling us what's wrong with us. That's the number one reason that people don't come to church anymore. They're always telling us what's wrong with us. We go in there and they say, we're messing this up, we're doing this wrong, we can't do this, it's wrong, bad, bad, bad. And that's, that's the number one reason that people don't like going to church. Now, can you go too far in an abusive manner with that? Absolutely, and people do it all the time. But in reality, that teaching and those sorts of teachings regarding sin are diminishing in churches everywhere because of research like that. And so there are people, there's church growth people that will tell you. In fact, the Wall Street Journal actually did a story some years ago where it was analyzing and looking at some big megachurches that had sort of popped up unexpectedly in different cities. They were trying to figure out what is it that makes this church so popular? What is it that these people are coming into? And the common thread they found in so many of these megachurches was that the concept of sin had been completely airbrushed out of the equation. So instead of sin, they would talk about words like hurt, They would talk about things like recovery, but not redemption and sin. Why? Because no one wants to hear about that. And look, don't look down your nose too much, those of you who have been in the church for a long time thinking that's shame on them. We all have that in us to some degree or another. I I mean, how many of us, and this is me, do not want to go to the doctor? you ever had something that you're like, this hurts and I don't know what it is and it doesn't seem to be going away? But you just don't want to go to the doctor because, in your mind, what are you thinking? Maybe if I just, maybe it'll just go away. I mean, I've had, I've been running for a while now and I've had this recurring hip injury that's just not getting better. And this week, finally, after months of this, I called the doctor and scheduled something because I just, it's just killing me. I can't do this anymore. But for a long time, I just ignored it. It'll just get better. It'll go away. Why? not because I'm lazy and don't wanna go to the doctor, it's because the last thing in the world I wanna do is find out I have to have surgery. Last thing in the world I wanna do is have him tell me I can't run anymore, I can't fish anymore, I can't do all these active things that I like to do. And so rather than going and deal with it, I find myself just going, I don't wanna know. I'd just rather not know. There's something in us a lot of times that we just don't wanna know the bad news. If we could just ignore it, then we'll stay away. And so this is happening even in the church. But think about it. What does the doctor exist for? His whole responsibility is to diagnose, report the bad news so that he can fix it. Imagine if the doctors never told you what was wrong with you. You just go in for a checkup and the next thing you know, you're strapped to a bed and he's pulling out knives. Like, I, Wouldn't you want to know um, um, why those? Don't worry about it. You don't want any bad news, do you? No. All right, just lay there. I'm going to cut you open. Like, no way we would do that, right? That would not happen. That's part of the reason they're there, is to say something's wrong that we then might understand the need for it to be fixed, right? Guys, this is the responsibility of the church, too. Now, not condemning, you bunch of, and that kind of thing that we've seen before. But, but people need to know the current condition they're in so that they understand even the reality, the necessity of a savior. But beyond even that, we, even though we've been saved, must be reminded about what we've been saved from because if we don't, we'll never love and cherish Jesus the way that we're intended to. That's the point. The idea is, Paul's not just coming in here. I mean, think about the order of it. Here he is in Ephesians 1, and he's just gushing with praise. God has done this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And then suddenly he just drops in this. We were all dead, sinners, imprisoned to Satan, to the world, following the course of the world. Like, why would he suddenly drop this nugget of horrible news? The idea is this. Believers in Jesus love Jesus cherish Jesus. Now now think about it. It's not enough. The scriptures tell us that we just simply believe. James says, look, Satan, the demons believe, even shudder at his name. They have an understanding of Jesus's power. They have an understanding of who he is. Do they believe in him? Of course they do. They see him. They know he's alive. They do not respect, love, or follow him. And what Christians are are people that have been saved by Jesus. They've been confronted by the grace and mercy of our Lord. And Christians love Jesus. And so Paul wants to show us what we've been saved from that we might love him. And look at some just random scriptures here that we've put together, if you'll put the slide up. Romans 8 says this, and we know that for those who what? Love God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now the word love in there is not just some mushy like, oh God. But, but it means cherish. It means you understand the value of that thing. You appreciate that thing. You hold it dear. So in other words, use that. And we know that for those who cherish God, all things work together for good. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Same thing, cherish, hold him dear. There's more. 2 Timothy 4.8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And Ephesians 6, 4, which we should get to in about two years. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love uncorruptible. So this is what Paul's doing He's setting before us a backdrop of doom and gloom that is reality so that we might more than ever cherish and understand the grace of the salvation of God for his people. So we need to not be afraid about the reality of things like wrath and doom and judgment because they just make the gospel shine all the more brighter. What we should be afraid of and what we should avoid and what we should point our fingers at is those who preach the doom and gloom of sin without the love and grace of the gospel. Because that's the whole point. If you're trying to preach the gospel without love, you've missed it all. Amen? And so this is what Paul is doing. He desires to fan the flames of our love for Jesus by showing us and reminding us what we've been saved from. So that's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is. It's a reminder of how bad are, we are off with Christ. And, and look at them quickly just so we can see because it's gonna tie into what he says in the next three verses. Verse one says, we need a savior because we are corrupt in sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. We were dead in sin and so we need a savior. Number two, we need a savior because of our captivity to Satan. Look in verse two. Sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. We need salvation because we have been in we've been captured, if you will, and are being led by literally Satan. And then number three, we need a savior because we are condemned to hell children of wrath. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead in sin, captured by Satan, and destined for wrath in God. Let me, let me challenge you here. You think of whatever situation you might be in. If, if you're one of those that you're in a situation of just doom and gloom, you're up against it financially. You have health challenges, relationship challenges, whatever it is might be going on. Or think back to situations that you maybe have, maybe you've been delivered from them, but, but you can remember times in your life where you're thinking, how will I ever get out of this? When will this storm ever be gone? Listen, the worst that you can ever possibly imagine. The, the most horrible situation you can possibly imagine yourself being in pales in comparison to the reality of the danger and devastation we are in apart from Jesus Christ. It doesn't even come close. The biggest problem by miles that every human being on earth has is they are destined for hell, imprisoned and dead in sin, and being led by Satan. It is a massive, massive problem. And so what Paul's doing here, he's pointing these realities out. And let me remind you again, like last week, he's not doing this to beat you up and make you feel bad. He's, I was even tempted last week as we were doing the message, to, or as I was preparing the message, to just do verses one through three, no good news, like let them sit in it for a week. And then sort of come back with the good news the next week, but that wouldn't even accomplish the purpose of the text. And I, actually, someone even told me a story just this week um, about uh oh, who was it? Was it Billy Sunday? Moody. D.L. Moody, I was just having uh, dinner with my friend here this week and he was telling me a story of D.L. Moody who did that very thing in Chicago one night. He was preaching, he was running long and he was preaching about sin and he decided, I'm gonna stop here, just leave them to sit in the reality of our situation apart from Jesus and then n- when we come back together, then I'm gonna say, but now, and kind of bring in the reality of the gospel and so he ended there and that night was the night that the great Chicago fire happened and he lost most of his congregation in flames and he swore, I will never do that again. So so we didn't, didn't leave you there. We talked about the reality of the gospel after because the purpose of the text is that Paul would have us see things are so bad. Verse four, but God. Say that with me nice and loud. But God. These are two of the most important words in all the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great theologian, said, these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the entire gospel. Say it with me again. But God, we are ruined and with no hope, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus. Heritage, you're supposed to read that and gasp in wonder and marvel at the grace of God. We had no hope, and we deserved no hope but God. You can never fully probe the depths of that sentence. Those two words, but God. We were dead in sin, but God, it tells us, made us alive in Christ. We were captive to the prince of the power of air, but God raised us with Christ and seated us in the heavenlies. Think about that. We were children of wrath. We deserved every ounce of the torment of hell. But God, instead of pouring out wrath, gives eternity to us in which he might pour out his grace and kindness on us. For eternity. The goal of all of these things, they should make you wonder. It should refill us with awe. There's a, there's a great pastor who teaches today named Paul Tripp that says one of the biggest problems with the church, especially people that have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, is that we have lost our sense of awe. We just are not impressed anymore. And we've become way too comfortable and familiar with the gospel that we forget how just stinking amazing it is. But God, I mean, think about you. You know you. What place, what right could any of us say we deserve to be seated in the heavenly places? To be called friends with God? Adopted into his family? But God. So so let's just consider this just for a minute. And what I want to do is just take a moment to compare how he turns these things on end just in these verses. So we're gonna put verse three against verse seven, that we were children of wrath, but but now God promises endless kindness. And we're gonna put verse two against verse six, where we were enslaved to the spirit of this age, but now God has freed us to seat us with Christ in heaven. And then verse one against verses five and six, that we were dead in sins, but we've been made alive with Christ. The first is this. In verse three, we are told, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And yet, just, just, Think about that for just a second. Right now, some, especially if you're new here, you're thinking we're at one of them churches where it's one of them fire and brimstone preachers, because he's talking about hell and sin and wrath and all that kind of stuff. And, and the church growth people would definitely tell you if you want to grow your congregation, if you want to draw people in who, who aren't naturally drawn into church, one thing you can't do is be one of those fire and brimstone pastors that teaches and talks about hell. But th- there is, now does that get abused? Amen, it does, amen? Has that been horribly abused in many situations? Absolutely, the realities of hell have been used to abuse people, to bully people, to build man's position and power, so absolutely that's been abused. But who teaches us more about hell than Jesus actually did? That's just the reality. We don't have our understanding of hell and judgment and sin based on the teachings of fire and brimstone pastors. It comes from Jesus himself. Look at Matthew 5.30. I think we have a slide for this, right? Matthew 5.30. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. That is a radical statement. If your right hand you cannot control and it's just sin, 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 you would be better to chop it off and throw the thing in the garbage, singe it and move on with your life without it than to miss out on the reality of hell. It's hard to imagine a more um, shocking way of saying don't go to hell. This is Jesus's words. Look at Matthew 13. Jesus teaches that all evildoers uh, will be throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Now that's the same Jesus that church growth people would say, "You need to just preach about how kind He was. So teach him about sweetest Jesus with the sash and the long flowing hair and how he hugged kids. That's all we teach about. But these are Christ's words. Or or look at Matthew 8, 12. Sweetest Jesus, because white, that's all. He wasn't really white, you know that, right? It's for another time. Matthew 8, 12. Jesus himself teaches that the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not warm and fuzzy. That's hot and burn. Don't go to hell. Or Hebrews 9, 27, he says, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Those that would say, preach the love and grace of Jesus. Don't talk about wrath and judgment. Jesus says, judgment's coming. Hell is hot. It's going to burn. It's going to hurt. Don't go there. These are Jesus' own words. Jesus warned us that everyone who has sinned against God is destined for the reality of hell. But... God, say it with me nice and loud again. But God, instead of a destiny in hell, he gives us verse seven. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We fail to realize how amazing this is. Think about what he's saying. Instead of endless torment, It's not even just endless salvation from torment, but it's endless grace and mercy, and I'm going to show you how much I love you forever. Now, we can't even get our minds around this. Has anyone here ever thought about heaven and how it goes on forever, and that freaked you out a little bit? It has me. And and the reality is, is our imaginations are limited. That's why. So for us, we think of anything, no matter how exciting it might be, eventually we get a little bored of it. We've done that, been there, enough's enough, and we can't even fathom being locked into the same thing forever. But if I was to sit you down, give you a pen and paper and say, I want you to write down all the way, just use your wildest imagination, because the scriptures say our imagination can't even comprehend the things that God has planned for those who love him. We just read that, right? So, so if I sat you down, gave you paper and pen and said, I want you to write down just potentially all the ways that God might show kindness to you in heaven that he might do things for you in heaven that show you how much you're loved just just let your mind run wild with it and write down everything you can e- even if you're the most creative among us what are you going to come up with hundreds let's let's say a thousand a thousand different ways i i get a pet tiger and it doesn't bite Uh, mansions, streets of gold, no pain, whatever the thing might be, reunited with loved ones that are gone, and just on and on and on and on, your wildest imagination, maybe you come up with a thousand of them, and that is woefully inadequate to represent what God really has in mind. Like not even close. Even the words that are used here are intended to give that understanding. He says, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches like there, you can't number the things and the ways that God is going to pour his grace and love out on us in eternity. You can't possibly list those things out. And it's used in such a word, using the word riches. And earlier it says, again, God is rich in mercy. In other words, he's loaded with it. And he can throw that stuff at you like nothing because he doesn't even have to worry about running out. He's got tons. And so think about that reality. Your sin destines you to an eternity of wrath and hell, but by his grace, he has not only just saved you from that punishment, but then says, Jeff, I'm gonna spend the rest of eternity just showing you how good, kind, and loving I am to you. That's what heaven's gonna be like. That should make your head just, right? He doesn't need to prove anything. And yet he says, I'm gonna spend the rest of eternity proving to you how good I am. Totally should have got an amen, John, don't you think? That's amen, right? Amen. What about the next one? Freedom in place of captivity, verses two compared to verse six. Verse two tells us that we've been following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work and the sons of disobedience. Here's another one that's not really popular in church growth formulas. Satan's real. Satan's real. It's not just a spirit. It's not just a concept. It's just not an idea. Satan's a person. And he's real. And he's powerful. And he's in control of a lot of things and a lot. Of people, According to verse two, we have been in step following the course of this world, in step with the times, in tune with the world, at home with the spirit of this age. Like it fits when we say, man, this place feels like home. What do we say? It feels natural. It feels comfortable. It feels good to be here. And he says, that's how you are with Satan. And you don't even realize it. And and some people think, no, I'm not. I hate Satan, man. I'm doing this in church and this in church and this in church. Well, here's the reality. Satan has a way of keeping us really, our our behavior right in tune with his desires. Sometimes that behavior is immoral and sometimes it's moral, but it's always self-centered. It's always self-focused. So the sad reality is there are people walking in and out of churches all the time that are being absolutely lied to and manipulated by Satan that just do good, write your check, go, check off all the things on the box and you're fine. And they have no real understanding or relationship with Jesus or reality of the gospel. And they don't even know they need a savior because they feel so pious and they feel so good and so holy. And yet here's God in verses one through three of chapter two saying, you're Devastatingly broken, and with no hope of saving yourself, but Satan just loves to manipulate people. Just keep them doing things that make them feel good about themselves. That's one of the ways that you can tell. It's always self-focused. And the scriptures say this is the reality: enslaved, controlled by a power infinitely greater than us, and doomed. But God, say it nice and loud with me. But. God, verse 6, raised us up with him and made us sit with him in heavenly places. He didn't just cut the leash so that we're not led around by Satan anymore, but he grabbed us by the scruff of our neck, lifted us out of the fire, and said, You sit here with me. That's unbelievable. Again, the limits of our imagination regarding heaven, regarding the kindness and grace of God, prevent us from fully understanding how incredible it is that we are no longer imprisoned to Satan, that we have a place waiting for us in heaven with God, joint heirs with Jesus, brothers, if you will, sons and daughters of God adopted into the kingdom of God, ruling and reigning with him forever, no longer being led around like a slave, in embarrassment and humiliation, but exalted and elevated to a position next to God? Unbelievable. Again, you know you. Think about you. How many of you think as you watch election stuff ramping up, I could never run for office because they dig up everything? (laughs) Anyone ever thought that before? And yet God says, you're going to rule and reign with me. Unbelievable truth. And the fact that he's, it's, it's almost like he's saying, and listen, no more about being at home there. No more about feeling comfortable there. You set your affections on the heavenly places. They're infinitely more valuable. Oh, it's an incredible truth. And then the last one is this, life and place of death. Verse one against verse six. According to verse 1, we are dead in trespasses and sins, the corruption of sin so deep that we have no spiritual inclinations. Romans 3 says, none seek him. All have turned away. No one spiritually inclined to seek after God. All have gone astray. And again, some of us, astray looks like Disgusting, filthy, immoral activity, but others, it's the whitewashed tomb of, of religious activity and self righteousness and self piousness. But in the scriptures, they're both equally damned. And the story of our salvation is like the story of Jesus' own friend Lazarus. You know the story of Lazarus? Jesus was away finds out Lazarus is dying, literally takes his time on purpose to show up back where Lazarus is. And by the time he gets to the tomb, Lazarus has been dead for like four days. And he's there and he sees what's going on around him. There's, there's the family who are dear friends of him, Mary and Martha, and they're coming to Jesus. Lord, if you had just been here, you could have saved him. And there's just this emotion pouring out. And then if you know anything about the culture at that time, you know that that in the Jewish culture, they would hire professional wailers and mourners, not wailers like harpoons, whales, you know, but like wailers, like moaning, wailing to come in and they would be around the family, sit in the house, sit around the tomb and just mourn and weep as a way of showing honor and sadness for the person who had died and gone on. And so Jesus comes to this scene And he looks at what's going on around him. And this is the passage that if you grew up in a Christian school or church where they made you memorize Bible verses, how many would say, this is where my favorite Bible verse was? You know why, right? Jesus wept. Like most popular memorized Bible verse by kids throughout the world for history. But that's the reality of it. Jesus sees what's going on and he's overcome by emotion. He's overcome by a couple of different kinds of emotion. If you've ever been to a memorial service that I do, you've probably heard me say this before. But yes, he is moved with emotion as he sees what's going on, his own friend having experienced death. So he weeps sadness, but it's not just this mushy, emotional, weeping kind of sadness that he feels. There's something in that story in John chapter 11 that's missed by every single English translation of the Bible that there is. But almost every other translation that's been put together, especially like, for example, all the German translations get this right. Because in there it says that he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. And we, because of our sort of Western culture and the way we do memorial services, translate that that into this sad, emotional weeping. But in every other place in scripture and in every other translation of the Bible that's ever been done, it doesn't mean sad, it means angry. And you go, that seems weird. Why is he showing up there and he's angry? It's because he looks there and he sees all of the results of sin and death playing out right before him. Sadness, corruption, death, dying, weeping, decay. And when he sees this, he's angry because we were not designed for that. He loves us. We were created to have eternal life and relationship with him. And right there before him is playing out on the stage the full result and end of sin and death. And what does he say? Open the tomb. And what's their reaction? Lord, he stinks. He's been in there for four days. He stinks. Open the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our salvation. Jesus walked by my tomb. Jesus walked by Jeff's coffin, who had been dead there for a long time. And instead of being repulsed by the stink and decay of my flesh, He hears the father say to him, I want that mess to live. Will you die for him? In an act of love that is unparalleled by human history, he says, absolutely. And that's the gospel. I didn't get out of that tomb and do a bunch of stuff to prove I was worthy of being saved. You know what I did? I just lay there and rot. And yet, Jeff, come forth. Carl, come forth. Terry, Come forth. I should come up with some ladies' names real quick. Jennifer, come forth. Robin, come forth. Stevie, come forth. That is the reality of our salvation. And Paul wants us to understand this. You've been called from death to life, you've been called from slavery to exalted in heaven. You have been freed and set free and been brought from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of the living. How is that possible? That is a deal way too good to be true. How is that even possible that that can be the truth? Sneak peek into next week. Look at verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that any may boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ for good works with God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have been saved simply by the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus Christ. One of the things the huddle groups are going to be talking about tonight as they get together throughout the valley is what is it, what part of the nature of God is it that has caused him to move towards us? I'll give you the answer in advance. It's grace. It's just grace. He is a gracious, loving, merciful God who is drawn towards us. And if you just think about the reality of that, we are repulsed by death. We, we I mean, have you ever been to a memorial service where they had the open casket? I'm glad we don't do a lot of that anymore because I'm just gonna be honest, it's creepy. there's something about that that is intentionally like revulsive to us, whether it be dead corpses of animals on the side of the road or gore in movies or whatever, there's something that is supposed to, in our body, I believe, repulse from those things and yet that's what God moved towards when he saw Jeff's decaying body, dead in sin, captive to Satan, being led around like some sort of war trophy. And he hears the father say, I want Jeff to live. Will you die for him? <laughs> By the unexplainable grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, he said yes. Heritage, be in awe of that. Be in awe of that. You are in the grave but God. And whatever you're dealing with in life, I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care how bad it is that you're dealing with. Whatever you're dealing with, you should be able to come back to that reality, be filled with awe and worship God to say, no matter what else plays out in my life, I'll be fine because I have been saved. Amen? Will you stand and we're gonna worship and pray together. man? We have so much to look at. Even just this stuff, you've been saved not because you deserve it, there's other religions. Do I even go down the road? Just real quick, Buddhism. Buddhism says you are saved by ceasing to desire the things in life. Confucianism says education and a moral life will save you. Hinduism teaches that detachment from ego and unity with others and the divine will save you. Judaism teaches that repentance, prayer, and obedience saves you. New Age religion teaches that a new perspective and understanding divine connections save you. Mormonism teaches that works, obedience, and loving others save you. Jehovah's Witness teach you that knocking on doors saves you. So I'm not really sure. But but we don't really know what they believe, really. But look, all of these things are religions of works. All of these are religions that say, you're in trouble, you must do this. Or if you feel inadequate here, you must do this. All of these things are. Christianity is also a religion of works. The difference is, has nothing to do with ours and everything to do with the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. It is good news. Heritage, know the gospel. If I was to ask you person to person, Bob, could you explain the gospel to me? How would you describe the gospel? If your first word is, "um, um," then you need to learn and know the gospel. But if your first word is, oh man, you got it. If your first word is, wow, you're not going to believe this, then you understand the reality of the gospel. God, we come before you And Lord, for those that would join with me in this prayer, Lord, as we stand here before you, heads bowed, humbled before you, I beg of you, will you restore our sense of awe? Lord, keep us from being so familiar with these truths that we're not blown away by them. Lord, help us, Lord, to be drawn back to your heart, those who have wavered. Those, Lord, who struggle with trust or in times of fear or whatever is going on in our life, Lord, may this reality of your gospel draw us back to the God who is all-powerful and yet all-loving and all-gracious. God, we are so thankful. And I pray, God, that, that our hearts would worship you in song and in duty. And I pray that, that we would just sing songs of worship with reckless abandon to the one who has saved us. And may we walk this life, Lord, in the reality of that gospel, Lord, worshiping you with our entire lives because of the reality of this salvation. God, just restore to us the feeling of our salvation, that that first time, the reality, the understanding, and may we once again be in awe of you. Amazing grace. but now i see how many times have you sung that song without a tear in an eye or a shake in your throat how familiar do we become with the realities of these things that we we almost become numb to what really is going on do you realize what the words of that song say they say that you were dead that you were a mess that you were a wretch And that God looked at you and said, choose you. Jesus looked at you and said, I'm dying for you. That God loves you. Oh, may God just recapture our hearts in such a way that we can't ever sing that song without getting a little moist in our eyes. That we wouldn't ever sing something like that just vainly out of repetition, but that we would literally chew on those words as we sing. Because it is a massive truth. And in the end, it's the only thing in the world that matters. That we have been saved by God. Sing that again. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I. And the result of that is love for God, sing, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what? sweet sweet sound in your ear i love you lord and i lift and i lift my hands to worship In what you see, let it be a pleasing sight unto thee. Lord, we love you. We are so grateful and thankful for your grace and mercy. And Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here with that same glow that your servant Moses carried. Having spent time in your presence, being changed by your grace and mercy, Lord, may we carry hope to the rest of mankind who is so hopeless. Lord, may your gospel spread through us and may we never cease to be amazed at your goodness. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said.